Morning. We doing well? Excellent. My name is Pastor Daniel, uh, one of the executive pastors here at Res Church. And, uh, you know, when our uh, worship director and creative director both got the vid, things are looking a little, <laughs> little rough and uh, just very encouraged by the counters. Yeah, if you don't know the counters, uh, they typically go to first service. But how encouraging is it? in the body of Christ to continue to have people who God has gifted and talented both with uh, regular gifts and with innate talents and even with spiritual gifts who will use those for the glory of God and the edification of the body and the building up of the saints. That's, that's encouraging. That's encouraging. And uh, I want to encourage you. I want to remind you that if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ that at the moment of salvation, when you receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, it may or may not have felt any different, but the Bible says that God gifted and granted you spiritual gifts and the very purpose of those gifts was for the body of Christ. It was for other people. So you got gifts that weren't for you, but were rather for other saints, for their encouragement, for their building up, for their edification. And so we greatly desire to see you use your gifts as you serve the body of Christ here at Resurrection Church. And there are a lot of ways to do that. Uh, we just heard about the Res Rally. So Res Rallies used to be actually only for volunteers. So if you volunteered at the church, you've served in some aspect, uh, we would do these rallies just to encourage you and to pour into you and give you a little bit of vision about some of the things that were coming. And we just started to realize like, man, these things are really cool. And there's not really a reason to limit them only to people who are actively serving, but rather, uh, we should open these up as much as possible. And so we do some fun stuff at our res rallies. You know, we have an opportunity to honor where we see Christ showing through in someone's life. And uh, we do some encouragement. We get to talk about some of the things that are coming. So we'll be doing that in a couple weeks. And then tonight we have this little sneak preview of a program we're starting called Supercharged. Uh, we're gonna begin to do some discipleship and mentorship. So that's pretty fun too. Lots of things going on. We're, we're uh, committed in our church to have a healthy pace. And so uh, over the summer particularly, we try to slow down our programming. We try to make sure staff get some, some vacations. We try to get some lead volunteers out of the rotation for a little while so they can get a, a break. And there are staff members that were like, yes, I'm ready for a break. And there were staff members where we were like, we're gonna lock the doors and turn off your key card because you're going on a break. Uh, and so, but either way, we got people breaks, uh, whether they wanted them or not, it was, it was coming. We want to make sure we're in it for the long haul. This is a long race, amen? It's not a sprint. Uh, and, and so there, the turtle always wins. <laughs> The turtle always wins. So we want, a, we want a healthy pace. And so we've been doing that over the course of the summer, taking some breaks. That's given you an opportunity, hopefully, to uh, hear from not just different worship leaders, but to hear from some of our elders and pastoral staff as they've all had opportunities to rotate into the pulpit over the course of this series. And uh, I want you to know that is intentional. That is one of the values of our church. It's not just the plurality of leadership, but it's the plurality of people that we believe God has gifted to proclaim the gospel from this pulpit. And so we uh, are picking up in our series, 
Heroes of the Faith, which is us walking through Hebrews chapter 11, which is called the Hall of Faith. And it is a description of a number of people from the Old Testament who, according to the Bible, displayed faith. And we've been walking through those. And, and in the process of walking through those stories and kind of those character studies, what we're attempting to do is not simply to apply the biblical truths to our lives, but also to, to wrestle with this idea of faith and what it is and what it isn't. And so there's been a lot of work over the course of the last few weeks to really talk about the concept of faith, how we see it displayed and talked about and explained in the Bible, and how we would then take this idea and put this to practice in our own lives. And so today we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 through 29, and we're going to be covering this character in the Bible named Moses. Now, here's the interesting part. There's probably no one written about more in the Old Testament than Moses, about 140 years worth of stories of Moses. And so I get one sermon to tell you about it. And since you don't want to be here till tonight, I got to figure out a way to do that. There's a lot of phenomenal things about the story of Moses because the story will pick up before his birth and will continue after his death. We have a lot of uh, recounting to do. And uh, we're going to do three things today. I'm going to try to get through three things today about this character, Moses. Number one, we're going to at least learn a little bit about who he was. Secondly, we're going to talk about why he's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. So we're going to look at where and why he's referred to in this Heroes of the Faith. And then lastly, we're going to attempt to walk away with some takeaways, applying scripture to our lives. So when I thought about how in the world am I going to do a bio or a character study, a biography on, on Moses for you when he has 140 years worth of stories and I have no time to do it, uh, whenever you know you got to fall back on something outside of the Bible, the rule of thumb is uh, the princess bride. I just want you to hear that, right? So if you're not sure ever, like life goals... And you're like, oh, if it's not the Bible, what should it be? It's Princess Bride. So it's not the Constitution, right? It's not anything. It's the Princess Bride. I just, there's a level of holiness involved, and you should understand that. If you haven't heard it, repent. You can do it afterwards. And in the words of the Princess Bride, when the main character is almost dead and he gets revived, and he's like, what's going on? Because he doesn't remember, and he has to have everything. He goes, well, there's a lot. Let me explain. No, wait, there's too much. Let me summarize. So I'm going to attempt to give you Moses' life story in 90 seconds. <clears throat> are you ready? Get your pen ready? Your ears are open? Hold on. Okay. The Hebrews are enslaved in Egypt for many generations because Pharaoh, their king, got scared that they would take over. It started really great, but like a house guest that just won't leave, things have turned sour, and now they're slave labor. It escalates into killing their baby boys so Pharaoh can slow down the population explosion. But Moses is born and his parents save him by hiding him and then floating him down the river in a science project looking raft to Pharaoh's daughter who raises him as her own. But he's resistant to, be, uh, to being a wealthy Egyptian and his teenage rebellious phase ends up him protecting Hebrew slaves by murdering their torturous overseer and then running into the wilderness scared of the murder rap only to fall in love with a foreign woman, become a shepherd, and hide away until God ultimately tracks him down with a talking, burning desert plant to send him back to Egypt as the deliverer, 
But Moses immediately launches into a full Gen Z level of excuses about his mental space and his lack of talents and his disability. But ultimately, God wins, like always, and he goes and confronts Pharaoh with some sort of magic snake stick. Is that a Slytherin wand? And the most redundant series of lessons in the form of apocalyptic-looking plagues that should have done the trick after the first time but instead takes 10 tries, the last one being quite literally killing every firstborn in the land, except for those that spread lamb's blood all over their doorways, don't ask, said Jesus, spoiler, finally head into the desert, split the ocean, pillars of fire, food raining from heaven, water from rocks. He sees God, writes the law, breaks it over the Hebrew people's faces because of idolatry, writes it again, authors books of the Bible, acts as a judge, leader, and parent to one million whiny Hebrews who continue to flaunt God and tire Moses out until 40 years later, he finally just dies of what I think is actually hearing one too many complaints, can relate, but actually God said was punishment for his lifelong anger. Woo! Now you know all about Moses. Moses is one of the two or three probably most renowned men in all the Old Testament. In the Jewish faith, Moses is one of the forefathers or archetypes of the faith and is talked about consistently, not simply in the Old Testament, but even to this day, Moses in the Jewish faith is referred to as a father of the faith. Listen to how the Bible speaks about Moses in Deuteronomy 34, 10 through 12. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all of Israel. In Numbers 12, 6 through 8, the Bible says this about Moses. And he said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. But not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Who was Moses? Moses was someone that God would actually speak to -to face-to-face, would uh, show himself to on Mount Sinai. Uh, To begin with, point one of who was Moses, Moses was the greatest lawgiver in the Hebrew faith, the greatest lawgiver. We get the Ten Commandments of the Jewish faith, of our faith in the Old Testament was given to Moses. And in the Jewish faith, there's nothing greater than the law, which was the Ten Commandments. Nothing was more preeminent than the law. If we go to Jesus' time and we begin to look at who Jesus is interacting with in the New Testament, we're gonna find people who specialized that all of their life, it was like being a religious lawyer. All they did was study the law. There was nothing greater than being a student, a master, a Jedi of the law. The law was God teaching his people how to live free. At the point where Moses brings the law to the Hebrew people, they have generationally lived in slavery. They've lived in slavery so long, they don't know what it is to actually be able to make their own choices. Some of you have teenagers like this. 
and they had to learn. And who was going to teach them? So God, in his mercy, guides his people by giving them the law of what it looks like to live as a free people. The law was God teaching his people how to please him. What does it look like to live a holy life? What does it look like to please God? He gave them the law, and he did that through Moses. The law was God teaching his people how to live life to its fullest. The law with the guardrails to show a people who knew no better what it would look like to live a law of fullness, not of themselves. We know, because of the New Testament, there is a need for the law, not simply to teach us how to live freely, not simply to teach us how to please God, not simply to learn what it would look like to live life in its fullness. But we know from the New Testament that God gave us the law in order to reveal to us our inability to keep the law. We were given the law so that we could understand that we could never keep the law. We were given the law so that we could understand how far away from actual holiness we were of our own righteousness. We were given the law because it is the presence of the law that exposes our sin. Moses was the greatest lawgiver. He was also a great historian. You may or may not know that Moses was the author of the books Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All of those creation stories, all of the early stories that you've watched Veggie Tales about, written by Moses. Moses was a lawgiver. Moses was a great historian. Moses was the greatest saint. According to Numbers 12, 3, he was the meekest man on earth. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth, which is actually an, an amazing testimony to the work of God because he certainly did not start that way. Have you read anything about Moses? We're going to see that he made a lot of mistakes and he did not come across as meek naturally. This is a work of God. A great lawgiver, a great historian, the greatest saint. He was the greatest deliverer of the Hebrew people outside of Jesus. Moses delivers the people from bondage and slavery in Egypt. Moses delivers the people from the armies of Pharaoh. Moses delivers people from starvation in the desert. God's work through Moses uh, exposes and saves them from their bad decisions in battles, saves them from their own sinful behavior, from their own idolatry, and even delivers them from a generational problem. Moses raises up the leader that would ultimately come after him. The greatest lawgiver, a great historian, the greatest saint, and the greatest deliverer outside of Jesus. This section of verses 23 through 29, we're going to split into five sections as we walk through the scripture because there are five by faith statements that we want to look at. And so in your notes, if you want to take notes, if you're a note taker, you can put one through five in there. And we're going to talk through these five by faith statements that we see about Moses. Here's the first one in verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king edict. So number one, in verse 23, by faith, Moses was preserved. By faith, Moses was preserved. Now, here's what's so interesting about the very first by faith statement about Moses. It's not Moses' faith. He was a baby. He didn't partake in any faith at all. Whose faith was it? It's his parents' faith. 
It was just mom and dad who, I want you to think about their faith. Moses' mother and father were not like uh, these churchgoers who got raised in the faith and they were, they, they were raised in generational slavery. No one had seen freedom as a Hebrew person in, in generations. So, so they were raised, born as slaves, raised as slaves. All they'd heard about God were just the things that had been passed down generationally. That They knew very little of God and yet they knew enough of God. They, there was enough work of God in their life for them to disobey Pharaoh when it came to this edict of killing the boy. Now, remember, killing the boy, well, we go, well, who wants to kill a kid, right? That's not much of a rebellion. The penalty for being caught was severe. And yet their faith saves Moses. And then if we go read the story, uh, they, you know, they, they weave together this basket. They get out in the Kern River. It wasn't the Kern. And they put Moses in there, little baby Moses, and they, they drift him down the current to Pharaoh's daughter who's bathing in the river. And his sister Miriam is in the water trying to you know, check on things and listen. And, and, and they have this whole little scheme to get him adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. And it works. But his sister's involved too. And I just, I want you to be encouraged by this. Well, we're reading Hebrews 11 and we're talking about all these heroes of the faith and how great they were. And we're like, well, I'm not really that guy, right? I'm just some normal person. I want you to know that we're here in Hebrews 11 and the heroes of the faith and the first people that we're talking about when it comes to the most famous guy in the Old Testament is his parents and his sister. His parents and his sister. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You, 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 you came from a legacy where there was somebody. Maybe it was your parents. Maybe it was a grandparent. Maybe it was an aunt. Maybe it was a grandma. Maybe it was an uncle. There's somebody that prayed for you, that loved Jesus. And because they loved Jesus, they loved you. They chased after you. I remember being far from God in college and walking into a church door and having no idea why I was walking in. And, I, and there were people that didn't know me and I certainly didn't deserve it. And I certainly never, ever responded in uh, a very good fashion, and they just loved me and loved me and loved me and chased me and loved me, and I could not explain why. And their faith had an impact on me. There are some of you that can relate to that. There's some of you that have a child, a grandchild, a loved one, a spouse that is far from God. And there have been moments in your life where you have been right at the edge of hopelessness. They'll never know God. They'll never come out of that addiction. They'll never be able to live a life that's just not dysfunctional. And yet, I just want you to be encouraged that your faith matters. Your faith matters. Moses' parents and Moses' sister's faith mattered so much that Moses' story is never written, and we're not talking about him here some 4,000 years later, if not for their faith. Your faith matters. And God's going to impact people because of your faith. Stay with it. We have a distinctive here at our church. Uh, we have three distinctives. One of them is that we want to be uh, multi-generational. We want to be cross-generational. Meaning we want to represent in different uh, ministries of our church generations from kids and teens all the way through as old as you possibly can make it. And we want all of them represented and we want to do life together. We do ministry together. 
But, but the second part of that distinctive is we want to be cross-generational, but we want to raise up the next generation. And, and understand what that means. That means an investment in the next generation. And an investment means a sacrifice and it means faith. It means what I'm going to do is I'm going to put faith that my investment, that the work, the sacrifice that I'm putting into something is actually going to mean something. That's what an investment is. And what we're committed to do at our church is to invest in the next generation. That means you and I are being called to sacrifice the now with faith that God will do great things in the future because of our sacrifice. That's what, that's what pairing is, is it not? Parenting? Parenting is a sacrifice, yes? Sorry, some of you. Parenting is a sacrifice, yes? Okay, you have changed a diaper, have you not? Some serious sacrifice going on to your nose area. When, you know, your time, your energy, your sleep. No? Oh, my Lord. There are times I thought, did someone drug me? No, you just haven't slept in 47 hours. It's a sacrifice. We're called to invest in the next generation by faith, believing that God will honor that investment. Verse 24, by faith, second one, by faith. Not only was Moses preserved, verse 23, but verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Not only do we see the faith of Moses' mom and dad and sister in verse 23, but in verses 24 through 26, we see by faith, Moses' identification, how he is identified. Moses grows up what is essentially a prince of Egypt. He grows up in the palace with full authority as a son of Pharaoh's daughter with all the luxury, all of the wealth, all of the power, all of the notoriety, all of the renown that comes with it. And he chooses voluntarily to not be identified as an Egyptian prince, but rather to be identified as a Hebrew slave. To put off all of this authority and luxury that he's been granted and instead be known as an Israelite. And the Bible says he considered this greater wealth because he was looking toward the reward. He could have quite easily said, man, <laughs> I'm just going to lay low. I'm, maybe I'm not going to claim you know, Egyptian heritage, but I'm not going to rock the boat. He got a good thing going. Moses, if he had been carried even down the street in you know, a chariot or a car or on a horse, people would have had to kneel before him. That level of authority. What's the identifying marker in your life? When people look at your life externally, other people look at your life, what is the first thing they would identify you as? When you think about yourself, is it, I'm American? 
Is it I'm, I'm Hispanic, I'm white, I'm African-American, I'm male, I'm wealthy, I've got a good job, I've got a college education, I've got a PhD? What is it? What is the identifying thing? What are the things that immediately come to mind? If I need to identify myself to you, I'm going to start with, for Moses, it was, I'm an Israelite. I'm God's chosen people. I'm not an Egyptian, not a prince, not wealthy. He was. I'm not educated. He was. It's an identifying marker for him. Identity for the believer, this idea of being a new creation in Christ, and in this new creation, all the identifying markers kind kind of bleeding away, becoming less important to us. And this idea of being raised with Christ, becoming so preeminent and so prioritized in our life that nothing else really, everything pales in comparison. This has been a struggle since the moment that it happened. Go read every church letter in the New Testament and they're struggling with identity. Struggling with, well, I'm Jewish. No, you're a Christ follower. Oh, well, I'm Greek. No, you're a Christ follower. Oh, well, I'm African-American. You are, but first you're a Christ follower. Oh, I'm Republican. Okay, but first you're a Christ follower. You're a Christian. You're a son or daughter of the king. That is the preeminent priority marker. It sets you apart in your life. I, 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 years ago, I was talking to a, a guy who was really, a young guy who was really struggling, and he, for him, it's just the identifying marker of who he was, everything about identity, as he was a black man. I was a, and I was like, yes, you are, but, but first, God has redeemed you, and he couldn't do it. He couldn't switch it. And, it, and look, him being an African-American in the United States, in, in, even in this time, it mattered. It had an impact on his life, right? Culturally, his ethnicity shaped and defined some things about how he experienced life. It's absolutely true. But not more than what Christ had done for him. And that's a, that's a struggle. We, we have always struggled with this. We struggle with this now. We absolutely struggle with this now. Christian nationalism, this, this idea that somehow that we were born in America is more important than what Jesus did for us and who he created us to be, it is insepid in our culture. In, in a vacuum, I think you're going to get this answer right. What's more important, the Bible or the Constitution? Bible. Uh, if you stuttered, it's the Bible. The Bible is not an American creation. We are Christ followers. And then everything else is after that. And if we get those out of order, we begin to have some crises in our lives because there's an identity crisis when you don't understand that the defining factor of your life is what Jesus did for you. And next thing you know, you got people that are all screaming Jesus and I love Jesus and they're storming the Capitol on January 6th. And you're going, this escalated really quickly. What in the world? Guys, guys. You you wonder why I know? Because I consistently have found myself tempted to be more about liberty and freedoms, right? Because I love the Bill of Rights. Oh, man. Let's talk about the Second Amendment, right? Than I have about Jesus. I need the same zeal for what Jesus did on the cross and how he has changed me that I would for any of those other things. In fact, I need more. That's what the Bible would say. That has to be the identifying marker. And if it's not, it should be these red flags going off in my head. They're like, whoa, I got this out of order, guys. 
That's dangerous. It's dangerous. By faith, Moses' identification. He didn't refuse to identify himself in these ways that would have been very easy in his culture, been very beneficial for him in his culture. They'd have been very fun for him. We'd have a lot of attaboys if he had. And, and instead, he looked to God and the promise. Verse 27, by faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So by faith, Moses is separated from Egypt. Now, here's the really strange thing about reading verse 27. It says, by faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. Except if you go read Exodus 2.15, when he left the first time, he was afraid. He murders a guy and then Pharaoh finds out about it and he's looking for him and he runs away. I mean, like that's clearly afraid. But he did go back to Egypt and leave a second time. And the second time, we see that his faith in God has grown him tremendously. Now, I'm just going to tell you that not all of us are going to uh, be separated from the culture around us because uh, we murdered somebody, at least I hope. I mean, it's a, I'll just, I'm going to submit to you that it's probably not a great way to start a ministry. If you murder someone at the beginning of your ministry, it's really counterintuitive because you're trying to build attendance, right? And you just kill someone. That's, that's one less. Don't do it. However, that separation, not just the identity difference of him identifying with the Hebrews, but then him having to physically separate, that, that, is, that is actually almost exactly what we see in the Bible when it comes to Christianity. When, when, when Jesus begins to transform us and change us and we begin to realize the significance of what Jesus has done, there becomes this separation between the world and us. And it's like oil and water, or the Bible would say light and dark, and it is impossible if you love Jesus, if you begin to get an understanding of what Jesus is doing for you, and, and you begin to gaze at him and begin to change you, and you be, if you're falling in love with Jesus, it will become impossible for you to be just with the world like everything's okay. It's it, it won't work. In fact, Jesus would put it this way. Jesus would make it even, sound even worse than that. If you're like, I don't really know if that's the case. I think I can get in fine. My coworkers kind of like me. People in the youth group kind of like me. People at school kind of like me. Everyone kind of likes me. I don't really have to talk about being Christian. I mean, I just, you know, if it gets conflictual, I'll just avoid conflict by being quieter. Let me, let me you, you hold on to that for just a second and let's read what Jesus says about it. Luke 14, 25 through 27. Now, great crowds accompanied him, that's Jesus, and he turned to them and he said, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Man, that's harsh. Hate your own father and mother. There's like two teens listening to this. They're like, Haha, I'm there. What, does he really mean hate your family? No. No, there's all kinds of stuff in the Bible about caring for your family and loving one another and your responsibility to take care of your relatives and to care for your family, to, to steward your wife, to, to raise your children, to bear the burdens of the weak, to, to, to put others' needs before yourself. So, so clearly that's not what he means. He doesn't mean hate everybody. He means that if you get a glimpse, if you begin to just really get an understanding and a glimpse of what Jesus has done, and you begin to realize that, that you're going to fall so deeply and madly in love with him that everything else will seem like hate comparatively. That much. 
And you're like, I don't know if I love him that much. Remember back to when you fell in love the first time and you wouldn't get off the phone. You remember how everything else seemed dissatisfactory and you get back on the phone with the person you really liked? That level, but more, because it lasts. Your family, your friends, your political parties, your way of thinking, your reasoning, the way you live life, if Jesus isn't worth more than those things, listen to me, if Jesus isn't worth more than those things, then he isn't really in charge. And if he's not really in charge, then I haven't actually surrendered to him. I'm just trying to fit him in. The reason you can hear Jesus say this and read Jesus' words and have this understanding of what he's saying is he's saying, I have to be your everything. You don't, you don't fit me in like dessert at the end of a meal. I'm everything. Or you still don't get it. You and I, if we... I've been saved by Jesus. We begin to come to this understanding of what he's done for us. We will find ourselves continuing to, to just be separated from this world around us, how we think, what we value, what encourages us, what our desires become, what puts us at peace. We'll just continue to be countercultural. To the extent that at times you'll look at the world and just be like, y'all crazy? And people in the world look at you and go, you're nuts. And you're like, I guess I am. Verse 28, by faith, fourth by faith, by faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Now listen, if you have never heard this, that sounds really weird. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Our fourth by faith statement, by faith is Moses' salvation. In Exodus 12, 21 through 23, we're going to see an explanation of what the Passover is. It's the 10th plague. So there have been nine plagues in Egypt, and it's been Moses going back and forth with Pharaoh saying, hey, uh, let my people go, right? God wants us out of here, and Moses is fighting him, and so God keeps putting plagues in. And the 10th plague, God says, I'm going to send the angel of death to kill the firstborn in every house unless you slaughter a, a lamb, a lamb without blemish, an innocent lamb, can't fight back. And you take innocent blood and you, you paint it on the doorposts of your house. Now, if you've been in church long enough, you know that there's a lot of symbolism here and what I'm gonna talk about. But if you've never really heard this, I gotta be, it's, it sounds really weird. Does it not? If you were there at that time and this guy who you're not even sure if you really like yet or not, who at this point has only brought a lot of plagues into the land and gotten you in a lot of trouble and gotten the Egyptians mad at you, comes to you after all the other stuff and here's what I need you to do. I need you to go kill little lammy pie, whatever they name lambs. Kill this innocent lamb Take its blood. I, okay, look, some of y'all are really into Pinterest, right? Into home decorating. I'm just going to submit to you that regardless of how many crazy, 
wacky ideas you've gotten off Pinterest or Etsy or whatever. No one's like, listen, Marsha, here's what would look great on the front porch. Lamb's blood. Like, it's weird. It would be weird, Dan. It's weird now. And so the, the point of it being by faith is not just that Moses brought it to the people, but for the people to spare their firstborn had to have faith enough to go and do this weird thing that sounded odd and put this blood up. Now, why did they do that? They did it for a couple reasons. They did it because God was going to begin the story, the track record of what this would look like, trying to get his people and all of us as we read the Bible to have this realization that there would be a debt that would only be paid by the blood of an innocent lamb. So it starts here, and, and they create a tradition called the Passover that every year they, 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 would, they would have to go through th this ritual to remember this point where God delivers them from death because of the blood of something innocent. It's foreshadowing. It's Hollywood 101. Because there was a day coming when there would be the ultimate lamb who'd lived an innocent life whose blood would be necessary to save us from death. And we would see Jesus fulfill that. And then the night before his death, he's going to sit at the table with his disciples when they're supposed to be having the Passover meal about this tradition. And he's going to look at them and he's going to serve up the wine and he's going to have the bread like they did at the Passover. And then they're going to look around the table and they're going to be like, wait, where's the lamb? And he's going to say, he's sitting right here. I'm the lamb. And he would take the Passover tradition and turn it into the Lord's Supper, communion, which we will actually be doing at, at the end of this service, where we take the wine and we take the bread and we remember the lamb. By faith, Moses' salvation, the fourth one by verse 29, by faith, is our last by faith, by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Point five, by faith, Moses and Israel's deliverance. Interesting, so this is the part of the story. Uh, they, he's led them out of Egypt. Pharaoh changes his mind, gathers his army, chases after them. They're stuck at the bank of the Red Sea with nowhere to go. God splits the Red Sea, dries out the land. They walk across it when Pharaoh's army tries to pursue them. It crashes down on the army and kills them all. It's a heartwarming kid story. It's interesting. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's very gracious to the people. Do you remember their reaction? There wasn't a lot of faith. Let's just put it that way. Moses had faith. The people lost their ever-loving minds. They were, lever, they were ready to go back to Egypt. They were ready to do anything. They were like, you, you brought us out of here to die in the desert. But Moses had faith. Moses' faith actually covers even the people. Moses, they, they get credit for Moses' faith. Oftentimes, I don't think we have a realization of how much we impact other people with our faith. 
Why we continue to stress this idea of the community of God, the body of Christ, is there are days where we have absolutely no faith and I am done and the faith is just done, dried up, but I'm really glad you're here. Because we need one another. Those uh, Rambo Christians don't do real well on their own. So by faith, Moses was preserved as a baby. By faith, Moses identified with God's people. By faith, Moses separated from the Egyptians. By faith, Moses was saved from death. By faith, Moses was delivered from the Egyptians. So, so we know why Moses is in here, but why is this applicable to us? Well, think about the steps of the Christian life that are anchored in faith. When you were born, let's, let me be honest, when you were born, it was a miracle. God put the very air in your lungs to live. It's an act of God. And if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, it was God that saved you through faith. It takes faith to live a life separated from our world. It takes faith to live a life that is countercultural. We have faith in God's promise that sustains us, that saved us from spiritual death now and will save us from physical death later, delivered to heaven in a relationship with God. So, in the same way Moses was preserved as a baby by faith, we were, we're only here by faith. We were only identified as a child of God by our faith. We're only separated from this world around us by faith, saved from death by faith, delivered by faith. What do you think about this? Uh, Moses, the really famous guy in the Old Testament, we're reading about his uh, Renown, I guess, in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith. So here's this guy calling him the hero of the faith. Moses had an uncontrollable temper, yet God made him the meekest man on earth. Just think about that. Moses was absolutely full of excuses, yet God accomplished more through him than any other human in history. Moses was afraid of everything, yet God made him the boldest man of faith. Moses had a stutter, but God made him the most famous spokesperson in history. Moses was only special because of what God accomplished through him, despite his best efforts to thwart God's plan. That's not to demean Moses, it's to encourage you. Moses developed the most important skill in life, throwing himself on God's mercy despite his weaknesses and trusting that God would be true to his word. That's faith. We, we, we're in the series, we're talking about what is faith? What does faith look like? Faith is not, faith is not some sort of like um, pull yourselves up by your own bootstraps sort of American entrepreneur, I did it my way sort of thing. Faith is not this thing where you just have a bunch of it and you have some and this other person doesn't have a lot and good for you that you have faith and he doesn't, sorry buddy. Faith is not that at all, 99% of the time, 99.9% .9 of the time. Faith is not some grand pronouncement that you in public walk out and we're really proud of you because you have faith. It's waking up every single day with a bunch of really tiny, small choices in your life where you choose to live that, 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 that little finite amount of time today, that little decision today, you, you choose to live it like God really is who he says he is and he's going to do the things that he promised to do. If, if you'll get up 
and you, you, you really messed up today and you get up tomorrow and you choose to live life like God really is who he says he is and he's really gonna do the things he promised to do, that's faith. The skills that Moses developed, this is his faith that Moses developed, that we're talking about thousands of years later, was not something that he just innately had. He was kind of an idiot. What he learned is to throw himself on the mercies of God. Yeah, I messed up really bad. I just killed someone. Throw yourself on the mercy of God. Yeah, I messed up. I, 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 I was just, I, I had no faith today. All I did was make mistakes today. All I did was things that I shouldn't have done today. I'm going to throw myself on the mercy of God. So that over time, as God begins to honor that faith, he begins to make you more and more dependent on faith. What happens is not that you look better because you're a person of faith. What happens is that we see you less and less when we look at you because we see God shining through you. Does this make sense? Transformation is not you looking good. We're not talking about the gym or some special diet. Transformation, biblically, is us seeing you less and seeing Christ more. Because faith, over time, is us just throwing ourselves on the mercy of God, throwing ourselves on the goodness of God, sitting in the grace of God, gazing in the face of God, and being like, man, I'm a mess, but you are so good. It's a bunch of small, daily choices where you live your life like God is who he says he is, and he's gonna do the things he promised he'd do. Here's your takeaway for today. If you get nothing else out of the whole sermon other than Moses was kind of a weird dude, get this, get this. It's what you learn. The gospel does not ask you to make better decisions. It says, trust a better decision maker. Do you hear me? The gospel's not telling you that you've got to live through your own self-effort, through your own flexing and gritting of your teeth, a more moral lifestyle. Religion asks that. The gospel says, trust a better decision maker. The gospel doesn't ask you to live a better life. It says, trust a better life giver. For me, for me to just grit my teeth and, and, and make better decisions and live more righteously and more morally, I would have to conquer sin. I can't. I tried. It won. That's not faith. That's not dependence on Christ. Let, let me see if this helps. How many of you have ever seen a little kid who, who really can't swim standing like at the edge of the pool and their dad's like trying to get him to jump in? Anyone ever seen that? Five of you? Come. Well, then use your imagination. Close your eyes. Good Lord. Close your eyes. Okay. Dad's in the deep end. Little kid's got his toes curled over the edge of the pool, right? Shaking. Now, what's the advice for dad? Listen, son, you better really have your stroke down, and I hope you've been doing some, some uh, strength training so you can actually keep your head above water when you jump. No, he's not telling him that. Using your form on this dive better be good. I don't know if it's good. No. Hey, did you get three life vests? No, none of that. What's he saying? Trust me. I got you. Jump in. 
You'll be okay. You'll be okay because the kids got some sort of competency? No. Morality? No. Self-righteousness? No. I've got so much. No. It's a little kid. Jump in and trust dad. I got you. Faith is waking up every day and going, okay, you got me. Okay. Man, yesterday was a wreck. Okay, I'll jump in again. Do you get it? Does this make sense? Moses was a wreck, man. He was just a mess of a guy. He starts off his ministry by murdering someone. Then he runs away like a coward and he hides. Then he has a stutter and he can't even talk. And then he makes a bunch of excuses and he has a temper problem the entirety of his life. So what in his story makes him redeemable? Nothing. He's not a good guy. He's not even a likable guy. He's not the hero. Jesus is the hero. We're talking about Moses today because he kept throwing himself on the mercy of God and we begin to see the power and the grace and the mercy of God shining through Moses' life. Listen to me. Jesus is not asking you to conquer sin. He's asking you to trust him because he's already done it. He's not asking you to conquer sin. If you had to do it, you'd fail. He's asking you to put your faith and your trust in him because he's already done it. He's already conquered it. Here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to partake today in uh, the Lord's Supper. We have the elements, the bread and the juice on these tables. And so in just a moment, uh, Kyle's going to come and play a song for us. And Pastor Mark will come up in just a few minutes and lead us through this. I'm going to give you uh, two things potentially to do. Uh, you choose as the Lord sort of leads you. Uh, you need to get the elements. So you need to walk up and grab those uh, while we play this song. But if, if you would like prayer... Oh, man, if, you, if, you, if you're just something you'd like to pray with an elder, a pastor, one of our prayer leaders up here, we want to talk to you. We, we'd love to answer questions, to pray for you, to pray over you. If you were really struggling, just feeling like you're in need of encouragement today, I wouldn't have people up here that would love to do that with you. So you move as the Lord leads you. Uh, go ahead and grab those elements. We'll sing a song and then come up if you have any needs at all. We'd love to talk to you. You move.